Welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed, your wildlife photography and outdoor adventure podcast. This week, your hosts are Michael Morrow, Ron Hayes, and myself, Mark Raycroft. Guys, fall is so busy and so much fun. I mean, hands down, in my opinion, the best time of year. Tripping here, tripping there, memory cards full here, batteries dead here, battery chargers dead. That's coming up in the podcast. And we don't get to touch base as often as we'd like. I was off the grid for a week. How much fun was that? It was nerve-wracking. We have no, no idea. <laughs> you had no idea. Yeah, thanks. We have no idea how much fun that was yet. Yeah. Ah, well, it's not. And it is all at the same time, because, you know, I have the stress about what's happening and and with clients in in the world, but also just to be in wilderness and just in that present tense and nothing around. But the sense smells everything about being in the wild. So we have not been in touch as we as frequently as we normally are. And last time we spoke, Michael was in Alaska for an extended period of time, living the dream. And I can tell by the background on fancy Skype world that you're not in Alaska anymore. And Ron is in Wyoming, and I'm back in colorful autumn Ontario for the next week. And then the colors will all be off the trees, but having fun with that. So, guys, it's been too long again. You've done great jobs on the podcast. You know, if you haven't dialed in for the last few weeks, make sure you listen. There's some great episodes the boys have put together with some wonderful guests worth listening to and then some how are you guys doing good here in colorado it looks like you got more color than we have though i don't know i mean i can barely see out your window and it looks way more vibrant here in colorado everything's just kind of brown and falling off we didn't really get too much color well i should say parts of the state did but other parts like my yard usually has really pretty nice yellow leaves but didn't happen this year. We got a cold snap and then high winds and that ended the whole thing. <laughs> and you got snow. The last podcast we did this yeah, last weekend, we it was snowing on you, right? Yep. It was snowing on my uh, receiver dish. So the internet connection and cable TV actually went out. Snow was bad enough. It was built up on the dish. So, yeah, the connection was pretty poor. But yes, we've had a couple different snows. Uh, one actually put a little bit on the ground that stayed, and then another one that was just here and gone. But a lot of high wind, and so that fall color didn't last very long at all. If you go down and find the valleys, you can still find a couple spots where there's still some color. But the, all the stuff on the mountaintops or anything that's open, is the leaves are all blown off the trees already. But you still have color, Mark right? Tons of color. It's just spectacular. Yeah. But our area is kind of sheltered. There's to the north of us, a lot of the colors off. And that's where we spent last weekend, which I'll get into in the the minutes ahead here, what that experience was and what it was about. But the colors right now, it's been our best color year across the province, I think in probably a decade in many, many years. And I'm not, we had a dry, we had a 
wet spring, a dry summer, and for some reason, everything just maxed out for color this month. Although I've been away until three days ago. So I just kind of landed back in to catch the second half of the fall color. So now I'm kind of scrambling to catch up because, again, those images are amongst the most marketable when you have the vibrant reds and yellows and the maples and oaks are changing. But yeah, it's been uh, a whirlwind month. And I, I know it has for you guys, too. And so this episode is catching up and, and the fun we've had in the field and some of the experiences that we want to share, the stories. I've got some myself that I'm excited to share from the trips that I've done, some unique encounters that worked out and, and didn't work out, but fun all the same. And But before we roll into the, the catch-up or the updates with our travels and successes for our wildlife photography things we learned <clears throat> along the way in the last few weeks as well. Want to throw some pro tips out there, guys? Want to bat them up? Yeah. Who's going to start? I've got start. Okay, Ron. <laughs> All right. Pitch is coming okay, over so, the plate. Um, as you look at as you look at the new cameras that are coming out, and we we did an episode talking about that. If you look back here, about two or three weeks ago, I believe, uh, with the equipment episode. Uh, we touched on all the updates that are coming up as far as the equipment, but some of those updates are available to you now. So for those of you that are using new mirrorless systems, um, the Z6, Z7, Z6, Z7 for the Canadians, um, and the EOS R for Canon, they are providing in an update for the firmware, the ability to, or the same ability that Sony currently has with the eye tracking and the, the uh, autofocus tracking for video. That is now available in the Nikon mirrorless systems and the Canon mirrorless system. So the point of this being, it doesn't matter whether you have those cameras or not, make sure that you're continually checking the firmware updates that are available for your camera. You can go into your camera's menu, look at the, go into the firmware portion of the menu. It'll tell you what version of the firmware you have available to you. Uh, the Nikon D850, I have complained for quite a while about the, the focus points that are on the edges and the fact that I have trouble or it'll, it'll jump off when, when I've locked on focus it jumps off. And recently they came out with a firmware update for the D850 that fixes that problem. So they're they're working, they're engineering the software. A lot of these things are just software issues and they can fix those without having to come out with a new camera per se by just giving you basically that new little bit of uh, firmware that you need or for lack of a better term, software that is going in and controlling that computer in your camera. So make sure you're always staying on top of those and getting those updates as soon as they come out. And it will fix a lot of the problems that we have with modern equipment. I'm really bad about that. And I just, I'm you know, you say yeah. do it when it first comes out, but then you'll hear another school of thought, another school of thought where someone will say, well, don't do the very first one. Wait to like, let's say the next update is 10.1.1. You should wait for 10.1.2 because the, there will inevitably be a problem in 10.1.1. They they'll fix quickly them. fix that and then yeah. they'll get the next one. And that generally will fix everything. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I'm always an early adopter. So I, but with cameras, I don't think about it. With my RED camera, I think about it all the time because they do come up with firmware upgrades for that all the time. 
But with these little DSLRs, I never think about it. But I think you're, you, the point you bring up is valid because it not only is it making the camera better, it's giving you way more options on that camera. Mm-hmm. So I think yeah, they exactly. added on the Sony the it uh, face detection on animals too, right? Yep. Is and that the, was that in the last that, firmware? Yeah, and that works on the. I know for sure it works on the Nikon Z6 and Z7 also. Uh, that same face detection capability with people and animals. So it'll it'll help you a ton in the field. Keep those eyes sharp. So we just lo- launched a podcast today with uh, Moose Man Nature Photos, Rick and Libby. And that's all they shot up in Alaska when we were doing uh, Moose. Is They had, I don't, I think it was the Zed... I don't know. I think that's the one they had and they loved it. And I mean, they were just toting these little itty bitty cameras around that was, you know, no big deal to, and I'm still packing my big old red camera and they were just beating me everywhere we went. Cause it just, you know, just the light package. Very impressive. I saw on the weekend, I was, I met a photographer, uh, Michelle Valberg, who is a Nikon ambassador in Canada, and she had all the gear and she was showing it in both those camera bodies. And on the 500 millimeter lens that matches those camera bodies is such a tiny outfit. Really, you could do anything with that. She's shooting video on that handheld and it looks good with the stabilization, given how light it is, especially in slow-mo. 120 frames per second, it looks fantastic. So they are more and more tempting every day for Mm -hmm. sure just the lightweight and and she had both of those nikon bodies because of the different applications one's got the larger sensor one's got the faster frame rate you know so depending on what's going on so yeah very tempting and i I held the 500 in my hand for like 10 minutes i felt like i could just put it in my coat pocket it was so small you know almost like an old 80 to 200 size and lighter than that even so for wildlife photography for trekking big difference and as far as the updates i mean we get those on our on our smart devices on our our laptops and our computers all the time and i've always heard that somewhat caution as well i you know sometimes they put an update update out and it causes problems because it's not perfect and so some people hesitate but for the mac stuff i've always lately i've just jumped on it and done it and but yeah the cameras it's weird you know i shoot a camera for years Maybe not nowadays since they're changing every year so dramatically. Let's say I shoot a camera for two years. If it's functioning well, I don't think to look for firmware updates. That's exactly right. That's what I was going to say, too. You don't if it's all working, you're getting good images. That's all that matters, really. But so. some of it's worthwhile. I mean, yeah, I look what sure. you know, Adobe Camera Raw, the latest update on my desktop. I have an older version. I've got to update it because on my laptop, you know, some of the uh, tools in there are game changers in camera raw that I've been playing with. So I want to have those across the board and it's a software update simply to do that with the subscription, of course, in this scenario. But yeah, great advice. And it's good to hear that. So I've noticed that too on the 850. And I didn't think to go and do the update with those perimeter squares. Mm-hmm. Even yesterday I was photographing and the far left, far right won't hold the focus. So I always hop in one and thinking, okay, I've got this 45 megapixel sensor. I'll zoom out a little bit. I'll hop in one autofocus uh, notch and then adjust it later to the framing I really want, which is uh, not ideal, right? So makes sense yeah. to do this. Awesome pro tip. How are you going to compared to that, the detail. <laughs> <laughs> so when I was in Newfoundland, that was my most recent trip. Can't wait to tell you about it. 
my charger. Now who, so I, I carry a couple of camera bodies and they both have the same batteries, works in the same charger. I have all this equipment that I carry, some redundancy, you know, I have extra memory cards, extra batteries, and obviously an extra camera body or two. Don't have an extra telephoto, a big telephoto or, you know, the lenses I don't, but who, I never thought to pack an extra battery charger. Now I had one because it came with the second body. It's lightweight. It's so easy to throw in the pack. So I'm in the cabin one night and I have three batteries on this trip for two cameras and the charger falls off the table, falls three feet to the floor. No big deal, right? I go to plug it in the next day to charge a battery and there's no little light coming on. I plugged it in different sockets, adjusted, you know, it's got this straight on. So it's a Nikon battery charger, but it was busted. And I thankfully had two and a half batteries of charge or two batteries. One was dead. So I knew I had some life left in my trip, but otherwise I was in trouble. And I met another photographer. We'd corresponded and we were going to be in the same place. So a uh, big shout out to Jose Albero. A great guy and a talented photographer from Quebec, Canada. And you can check out his stuff. I want to throw that out there, too, on Instagram. It's J-O-S-E dot A-L-B-E-R-O underscore wildlife. He's been in many places across North America and has some very uh, impressive photography to show for it. He bailed me out. So it was hilarious. We're in this restaurant. I knew he was in town. We just got in town. And he texted me an update of what he'd found the day before. So I texted him back. It's like, great. And he's like, well, I'm the guy, if you see me in the field wearing the gray hat with the uh, red maple leaf on the front. And, we, and Pilly and I were at the dinner table. We look over his shoulder. The very next table, 10 feet away, he's sitting there facing away texting me. So Pilly had this great idea, texted back, well, you should try this restaurant in town. It's really good. And all of a sudden we hear this laugh because he looks over and sees us. So when he, came, he joined us for dinner and, and each night, because we had so much fun for the few days he was there filming together. But thankfully, my first question to him, other, when, other than how he was doing, was, what camera do you shoot? And it was Nikon, the same thing. And so he, he bailed me out for battery charging. Thank you, Jose. And pro tip of the day is if you've got a second battery charger, there's no weight to it as far as the pack or space. I'd advise sticking in there. 20 some years and it's the first time it happened, but that certainly could have compromised the trip. So live and well, learn. let me just add on to that one because my learning curve with that whole battery charging thing is I always pack two because of that. You know, I'm always worried about, you know, when you're doing a job out there and somebody's paying you to be there, you can't be without batteries. Right. So mm -hmm. <clears throat> that redundancy is very important. But a lot of times You'll get, well, when I'm out on an assignment, I'll get back really late and we won't be able to throw chargers or batteries on the chargers till 10, 11 o'clock at night. The last thing you want to do, if you only have a one whole charger, is set your alarm for two hours from now to wake up and change the battery. So what I've started doing is buying the dual battery chargers so I can have two batteries on the charger at once while I'm sleeping. That way I don't have to wake up in the middle of the night and manage batteries. I don't think it's big, as big of a deal with stills as it is with video because video we chew through the batteries a lot faster. So you probably only have one a day that you have to charge, but it does make a difference if you have a dual battery charger. So I take the dual and then I have the single and then every night I can charge three batteries at once if I need to. 
Yeah, and, and they're not that expensive. I mean, in yeah. panic mode, I was on Amazon searching for alternative battery chargers for these cameras, and they were like 40 or 60 bucks or something like that. So I was about to order something and try and get it delivered within a day or two. But you're right, and that makes sense. And that's why I've said it before, there's more than one host on this kick butt podcast, guys. That's a great – I mean, really, who – um, it's the same thing as hard drives. There, there were two or three hours I wasted at night on these trips, you know, because I brought a blank hard drive, but the other one wasn't blank. So I'm making space on this one. It's like, no, 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 stop wasting time. You know, have two hard drives with lots of space when you're traveling to download this stuff. Don't waste. And that's that's a great point with the battery charging, right? You don't want if you've got one only. And in your case with video, yeah, it doesn't make sense to have to wake up and reset again and again. So and we're moving yeah. into the winter time. So packing extra batteries is going to become a necessity anyway because they drain a little bit faster as it gets cold. Right. Yeah. All right. Michael. Well done. Well, my tip isn't, I don't know, it's it's not going to work for most people, especially if you film or photograph by yourself. But I had the occasion to shoot with some people up in Alaska for a lot of days. And oftentimes we would go to two separate areas. And you're really curious what the other person's finding, right? So you really want to know, but it might be two miles away. So what we started doing is, uh, and I noticed that uh, it was car photography. It was a Kate and Adam. We did a podcast with them. They carry these little radios just for those two. And so they'll communicate because a lot of times they may be photographing in the same area, but they might be a hundred yards apart or 50 yards apart. And in an effort just to keep the, the talking to a minimum or just keep the situation natural, they'll just reach over on the radio and this they'll just update each other on what's going on. But what we found was I could head up a valley for a couple miles. They could head down the valley. And then if I found something good, I would just get on the radio and say, Hey, you know, blah, blah, blah is going on up here. They would do the same. So it was kind of cool. I mean, obviously you don't want to have a million people on one animal, but when we just had two or three of us, it was kind of cool that we could share that information and it just made it much more effective and just made more out of that day. Cause if I'd have went one way and didn't know that a mile down the trail, the other way, there was something going on. It might've taken me three or four hours to go up, do all my searching, come back. And then whatever they were on would probably, probably be done, you know? So I just thought, man, that's a pretty good little idea. And there's all kinds of different radios out there and those little I think they call them FRS family radio service. That's uh, kind of what we were using and it just came in really handy. So it might be worth it just to throw a couple in your pack. And then if you happen to find someone like you were out with Jose, you might want to just throw a radio and that way you guys can commute. Even if you're a hundred yards apart, they make a difference. Absolutely. With where we were, thankfully, a lot of that, those few days we had cell coverage. So it'd just be a text, right? So we bling right. the text over and catch up that way but anywhere where you don't have cell reception and you know hopefully uh, as far as our audience is concerned you have trips where you can get out there away from cell reception and enjoy wilderness in its purest form and these make sense that way and yeah there was time that you know pilly and i had a really unique moose encounter last week and we got spread out by you know a hundred and hundred or so yards and that's not far but with the vegetation she couldn't see some of what was going on so i had to make sure she knew what was happening just to be on top of the situation and that would have facilitated it right there so yeah and they're in they're inexpensive too and they work you know like you say over if there's line of sight especially you know you can get several miles connection yeah. out of them even the yeah. cheaper models so exactly. it's a great idea 
So that's my quick put together pro tip as fast as you can. That was good. Well done. Thanks. Well done. So where do we go with this, you guys? I mean, it's been there's so much to catch up on and experiences, ruts of this sort, ruts of that sort, color, weather. I mean, you had it all up there in Alaska, Michael. There's snow and lots of stuff going on. You wanted, yeah. I don't know. I think, I mean, it's just rerun or part two of what I said on the last podcast that we all did together. I think you guys probably have more stuff. Although, Ron, you've been doing a lot of stuff around Wyoming, but I think you have the most stuff, Mark. You have, I mean, all the stuff that you did in. Well, you were up in the Canadian Rockies, and then you went to wherever else. I don't even know. <laughs> so, well, it was, yeah, that the last podcast where we did that two-take podcast, it was catching up. Same idea. And I didn't have as much to contribute as you guys at that time. So, yeah, I was just leaving. I was packing my bag that night to fly out. And it was whirlwind trips. I did uh, one trip out west to Alberta, to the Rockies, to focus on the elk rut. I did not do the elk rut last year. It's the first time in years. So I wanted to go somewhere and, and get some new fresh material and just have fun because elk are, you know, a blast to film when we get lucky and get in the right right place at the right time. And the trip was and see some friends out there, too. You know, it's a different area of the country and I, I get out there maybe a couple of times a year. So get to catch up with people. And the trip worked out awesomely. Uh, as far as the elk rut goes. And the other nice thing about uh, the Canadian Rockies is all kinds of wildlife. It's not, it's not just the elk rut. So my hopes were, I only had six days on the ground and I know I was breaking our rule of our 10 day minimum, but <laughs> that's, six your, was better. that's your rule, by the way. Yeah. 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 And I, I, I still stand by it. I really do. And well, here's proof. Here's proof. I was there for six days. The three days after I left, my friends got stuff that were f pictures of a lifetime. And and if I, because ah, it snowed heavily around the area. It was an early autumn snowfall. And to the point where I had to detour my trip back to the airport and add an extra couple of hours of driving to go a different route because through the mountains was going to probably delay me. And I, I didn't want to risk missing my flight. But because of that, I left a little bit early and went this other route. And I mean, I had to go because of my flight in this situation. I had another trip back to back. If I'd known what was going to unfold, I definitely wouldn't have. But so 10 days would have been far better than six. But the six days, the elk were, were great. Not a lot of animals, but some real quality opportunities. And one thing I love as a wildlife photographer is to have opportunities where it's way off the beaten path and quiet and shared with and, and not to be any social. I mean, I love all the other, other photographers out there and hearing the stories, meeting people, interacting. But as we all know, none of us um, – seek a situation where there's 10 people filming the same animal and, and for all the variables that that introduces. This trip was wonderful because the elk that we found, the, the most impressive bull in this case that we spent quite a bit of time with over a few days, was in a really remote area that required some good hiking through the timber to get to him. And so it was very quiet shoot kind of intimate that way and and of course in the elk behave more naturally and, and we can get those behavioral opportunities and wonderful color this year out there no snow when i was there um so i'm pausing because it's, it was a two trips ago and there's so much has happened but the colors were great and got a great fight 
So that's always exciting. It's not something that happens on every elk trip where two big bulls go at it and, and create that opportunity. And of course it's the video or stills video or stills. And in all honesty, for this trip, knowing it was only six days, I took all the video gear, but I didn't take it out because I, I just wanted to focus on stills because I'd missed last year's elk rut and wanted to beef up the portfolio and, and not get distracted that way and no regrets. And the other thing about that trip, the last day and a half or even, you know, last two days I focused on moose and that went really well. And there was some snow where the moose were and the moose numbers are doing well, thankfully in that area. So it was a lot of fun. Had one bull that had three cows and they were vying for his attention. The dominant one kept chasing the other off and good interaction and lip curling. Always love those shots for any ungulates, any antlered animals when they tip their head back and, and do that phlegm and that lip curl where the male tests if the females in heat by get this, you won't like to hear it, but tasting her urine and then inhales and tips the head back. That's one of the best displays photographically to represent these animals in rut. So I was able to get that with the moose and, you know, timing wise, here's a little, little tip when this happens. So if you're watching moose, for instance, or even elk for this matter, we all know they're going to, they bed down. So we spent a I don't know, maybe five hours with this moose. He bedded down. So we just w were off at a distance, maybe 200 yards, 150 yards, 200 yards away at different times and just wait for them to get up. And when the female gets up after being bedded for two or three hours, the first thing she does is stretch and then urinate, especially if she's in heat, right? They do that far more frequently when they're in heat. That triggers his response where he'll immediately trot over to her or get up if he's not already up and taste that urine and lip curl to verify her state of estrus. So as a wildlife photographer, behavior, I mean, for me, what I do professionally, and, and I'm not, I know my camera gear that I use, but I'm not the camera gear junkie guy. I'm about the animal behavior. And in this situation, it's a matter of being dialed in for that. So think about that. If you're, if you're watching rutting animals and the female's been bedded for a couple hours, when she gets up, this is likely going to happen to give you a, a warning and you can get in position for the right background and angle if it's possible to get fantastic lip curling images. So that was a thrill for the moose. So those two things, it was a whirlwind trip. I mean, all these trips and at the end of the trips, life goes by too fast, day in and day out. I mean, how are we getting old dur, old dur so quickly, right? I look in the mirror and I'm sure there are three more gray hairs in my goatee every day kind of thing, probably seven. It's I was going to say something, Mark, but I didn't, <laughs> I didn't want to give you a complex. Oh, well, I have enough of those. No. It was, uh, I just, they go by too quickly, all these trips that we do. And, and, you know, they're just so much fun. And it's so, so refreshing to be in such a present tense, like I've said before at the beginning of the podcast, where you just have to focus on what's going on around you, right? We're watching the animal behavior. We're excited about potentially collecting amazing images as anybody would be on these trips, but you have to focus on it. And because of that, it just zips past, you know, here we are we're back. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so the that, elk rut's over, moose rut's pretty much over. We are now in a waiting pattern for the deer to get started. Pre-ruts pre getting started. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's, that's the third part of, of my story that I, so I was, I did that trip. I can elaborate on it more if you want, but uh, I was home for 24 hours and just spun around and headed from Alberta straight to Newfoundland for two weeks there and was totally out of connection the first week and had a lot of fun uh, 
And one thing that was great this fall, too, it started with the elk being so far back off the beaten path. The the group that we were working with um, was just hiking and exercise. And I mean, you guys can relate to it. I know, Michael, with what you were doing this late summer and fall, a lot of physical exertion. I just love there's so much sedentary time with editing photos. I just love pushing myself physically. And, and there's something psychological where I as much as. You know, I'll take a roadside shot if there's an opportunity opportunity to get something good, of course, and, and hope to sell it and make income off of it. It's part of my profession. But the photos that mean the most to me are those that took more effort and, and were further away. And, and just it was more of a, a long term experience that took you know, it was hours with these animals, not, you know, 30 seconds, quick snap off at the edge of the road and they're gone. It was getting to know their personalities and film various behaviors. And this year's trips were really great that way. And it was fun. It was the first time I've paid attention on my smartphone to my steps if I'm wearing in my pocket. And thankfully, it works on airplane mode or if you don't have connection or anything, too. And I'm not sure. I don't think it's as accurate as some devices because how can it be bouncing around in my pocket? But I still went by it. And it was, you know, encouraging to see that, you know. I think the most is only like 15 kilometers in a day, but nine to be average. And just knowing we were hiking that much tundra or forest uh, and spending time with these animals, especially the caribou in Newfoundland, because they do have a home range, but they're far more nomadic even in that home range than moose are. You know, moose will have their daily rhythms and they might cover uh, half a mile. But the caribou, you know, spend two days happy in spot A and all of a sudden one of the females thinks, oh, well, let's go for a walk, everybody. And they'll go, you know, three, four, five miles away and settle for in another spot for a few days. So we were really lucky for the caribou component, the woodland caribou we were filming in Newfoundland to be able to keep up with them. And, you know, we'd glass a long distance and, and spot them They easily could have missed them with all the habitat and how they were moving. But we were able to find them each day and a little more hiking here and there. But that made it more fun and more rewarding. And this year it was I photographed caribou in different areas of Newfoundland. But this was kind of the same vicinity as last year and a similar some of the same group and, and some new animals, too. But it was last year. I only had a few days with them because of other things on the agenda that I was shooting for on assignment, whereas this year. What I had done was I spent a, a day and a half there at the beginning of my trip and then went there with Pilly for the last week, my wife. And I was just we we're just playing it by ear because we wanted to experience so much of Newfoundland. But we ended up staying with these caribou for days because it was just so much fun. And then we bump into moose, too, while we were hiking to get to the caribou and, and had a really cool moose experience. We were going through those really thick forest um, with Tuckamore, which is this shrub that you cannot get through in Newfoundland. It's an evergreen. It looks like a squatted pine, if you will, but it's it, you can't get through it. And it's kind of like the willows in Alaska, right? You know, all these weaving branches. But you can navigate around them. But the easy thing to do is to just watch the game trails. And the locals call it those up there. This is great. They call them roads. It's like a, a caribou or a moose trail. It's called a road. So... We we took that on, Pilly and I, and we we're saying, oh, here's a nice road over here. And we get there's on it. There's a road and, for a pricket. Well, yes. Prickets use the roads. All, and so a pricket is a calf caribou. That's what they call them in Newfoundland. And we covered this last year. So typically, I refer to caribou as a bull, cow, and a calf. But in Newfoundland, it's a stag, a doe, and a pricket with a pea. And they're about as cute as animals get as far as hooved animals. Um, 
But by following those game trails, you get through the thick brush for the most part. There's the odd time we get hung up. We're going through and it's like, where did it go? How did they keep going through here and have to backtrack around? But the majority of time that allows us to navigate this dense forest or uh, along skirt the edge of bogs. And the bogs, you have to be careful because it's like this floating mat of vegetation. In some areas where it's dried out a bit more, it's quite firm. But in other undulate quite a bit and the last thing anybody wants to do is go through that mat because nobody knows how deep these bogs are and in that way it's smart to have more than not to be by yourself if you're navigating bogs because if something did go wrong and you go up to your chest in a bog then you can have somebody help get you thankfully that didn't happen because we followed the quote roads around but we were following this road, this path, these game trails, and some of them are so worn. It's incredible because it's, it's, it's such a sensitive habitat, if you will, with the lichen and the moss. And if they keep using the same ones or these clear dirt paths through the forest, we were following this one thick road through the forest. And we, I could hear it. it was, I knew it was a moose because it was too dense for where the caribou would be. We were just navigating through to get to the caribou. I heard this crashing ahead. So we stopped and we gave it, you know, 30 seconds so the animal would settle down and leave the area and not feel pressured by us. And then we went on ahead. About 50 or 60 yards later, we emerged at this bog edge and it was early morning. And I could see down to the right a whole group of moose. Uh, there was, I think there were eight moose a little far out of reach to photograph and it looked like there was too much water i mean that's something about newfoundland bogs you know it's just pockets of water everywhere to get closer to them so i stepped out of the willows and zoomed out to 500 on my two to five to try and get some environmental portraits of this group of moose two of them left six stayed and they stood in this straight line and then started coming closer I'm like, this is unusual, but good. Why are they coming closer? Normally the moose take off in this area. I mean, you have to play the wind. You have to be careful. You can get close to them, but it's really an opportunity. In this case, they weren't running away. They're coming closer. It didn't make sense, but I kept photographing them. They kept shifting positions, giving a variety of photographs, which are really exciting. There was a really nice bull in the group, and then there were some younger teenage bulls, and then the rest were females or cows and they came closer and closer to the point where it was perfect distance for the 500 i could zoom out and get the whole row of them with the bog and in this time of year in newfoundland the large trees or the tamarack are the only only trees only conifers or evergreens that shed their needles in the fall and they turn gold yellow across the north and it's a beautiful colorful backdrop so the tamarack or larch were full blaze of color behind this group of moose but what i didn't realize until i mean it was probably 20 minutes this happened and they just stuck around and kept coming closer and closer like they were curious and this is the situation i was referring to earlier where pilly was about 100 yards behind where a radio would have been great right at this point she could see me she could see the moose she took a photo uh, of me photographing the row of moose off in front of me with her with her phone but i looked to the right and 150 yards of way was this calf it just come out of the woods on the same side of the bog we were on the group of moose were waiting for the calf somehow the calf had been separated and there was clear this matriarch cow so as they were coming closer she was the one in the lead and all the others followed even the bull and she kept coming closer and looking around us and looking around us then the calf came out and she got locked right onto it with her eyes and started calling at it 
And eventually, about five minutes later, the calf went across the bog. But first, it started skirting our side of the bog. And this bog would have been effortless for the moose to cross. And at this point, I'm thinking, no, it's better they stay on that side and we're on this side. So I moved a bit and made a noise. So the calf saw me and then went over to its mom. And at that point, they all left. And But, I mean, what an opportunity. And it was just one of those things where without being out in the wilderness, you never know. Every trip, every morning or evening shoot that we did on this trip, we didn't know what was going to happen. Should we try this? Should we try that? And there was something magical every time. And this was one of those cases where we didn't have much for moose in Newfoundland at this point in the trip. And then this bro came out. And for some of the projects I do on assignment, it'll be great to show the group of the moose. After that, we let them go. They went into the forest on the into the evergreens on the far side of the bog and we went left and skirted a few hundred yards up around back on one of these roads up to higher country the tundra where the caribou are on as we were skirting around they had skirted around as well in the same direction and we bumped into them and they were at least 200 yards away so no photo opportunities again because they're skittish but it was a cool shot that i got and i haven't edited this yet where there's this whole forest scene the whole landscape scene with this trees and sky and the bull bred the cow in the corner it's kind of like a where's waldo but with mating moose <laughs> so that's a new one so it was full rut and then we went on and and i don't think we found the caribou that morning but certainly made up for it with the moose so anyway you found the caribou another morning because it yes was, uh, probably once. the craziest woodland caribou image i've ever seen on instagram Oh, that's uh, thanks. Thanks for saying so. You know, it was one of those pictures when I was <laughs> prepping it. Pilly's like, no, no, don't put that one up. You know, it's one of those ones to save. But I'm like, no, no, people need to see this one. But we haven't edited many of them yet. That was we only had this that that sky and the opportunity for those silhouettes. The one one morning. Other mornings were just crystal clear. And as you know, we've talked about before, it's such a short silhouette, colorful opportunity when it's crystal clear blue sky within 20 minutes everything's changed and it's kind of washed out or other mornings were overcast so that was the only morning where the sun hit the bottom of clouds and it, that cloud bank didn't cover the whole sky but it maybe went up uh, a third or so in, so that it lasted for an hour the opportunity for silhouettes it was rare that way because the sun was kind of kept behind to a degree the clouds and diffused it and kept that red hue i'll admit we weren't out there as early as we should have been for that sunrise and then we glassed them about a mile away and so we walked them you know speed walk don't scare them you know and that's and we got there and then we're able to get thankfully just due to the clouds to get those but there's a few where he was um chasing the does or the females that i'm looking forward like uphill with his hoof up horizontal and i took some with the doe and, and pricket stuff and this was a trip for the woodland caribou with what's happening to caribou populations across the planet um you know more and more concern about their plummeting populations i really wanted to document everything i could about these caribou so a lot of close-ups of the young or mother and young together or group shots was important that i wanted to collect you know obviously you know i love antlers and my eyes drawn to the stag and, and the majority of images can include him but there are all these other opportunities just feeding so when they the doe or the female lifts her head she's had lichen in her mouth to show that what they're eating and 
I wanted to really cover the species as well as I could for woodland caribou on this trip. And I think I'm going to have an edited, but I won't, I won't tell you how I, well, it's like nine or 10,000 pictures. So I think I hope to have done it and video. So I don't know I, if you want me to keep talking about caribou, but I've got some lessons learned. I did not do video on the DSLR. And Michael, I love the red, but to some of us, the DSLRs are the big cameras, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> What'd you do video on your phone? No, the Osmo Action. So with the, so I'm liking the Osmo. I'm sorry. Let me stop right there. I'm loving the Osmo Action. We talked and talked and talked on the podcast about the Osmo Pocket. Great device. So much I, so that everybody I talked to went and bought one, and then they're like, "Ah, is this really so good?" Well, okay, I think it is good, but it's got its purpose. It's not. It's not in my hands anymore very often because well first of all we know the action is submersible from when we want to use that that's pretty cool it's got a bigger screen i can see what i'm doing front or back better than i can on the pocket the stabilization is just as good so i can hold it one thing when which trip was it i think it was in july when we were doing the bears with the salmon i was filming us doing time lapse and walking along the forest trails and the osmo pocket had a mind of its own sometimes and would just drift right or drift left. And like, no, no, we want to get the trail. I want to get Michael or Ron walking ahead of me. There's a reason to this. And I had difficulty keeping it on subject, whereas the Osmo Action, all the stabilization is built inside. And I just have to hold that, whether it's in my hand or on a device and or just on a mount, and it will stay where you're pointing. It's just easier. So I like that simplicity for vlogging. And, you know, we did some of that in Newfoundland, told some stories. I, it's, I'm going to fill the whole podcast on this stuff. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll start with the first thing. So I've talked about since day one on Wild and Exposed podcast, this dream of mine to get wide angle shots of caribou going past the camera. And we can't do that ourselves. Can't lie on the ground for all kinds of reasons. But these action cameras made that possible. And I kept saying, oh, it'd be great to try, great to try. And I tried it on this trip and learned some lessons right out of the gate that were interesting. And there's going to have to be some other strategy with species like bears. I'd like to try it with bears, but all these animals are so attuned to their environment, they notice it, right? The so bear is going to come over and go like, what's this? And this is my new toy. And I'm going to take it back into the forest. And you're never going to see your 500 or Canadian or 350 U.S. Osmo action ever again, or the footage. So ungulates, I figure, well, worst thing they'll do is knock it over or something, right? Ha! So <laughs> I set this up. Beautiful morning. Third attempt in positioning it to get a caribou to come over. Beautiful light. I'm thinking, okay. I'll, and so what I've got here, for those that are just listening to the audio podcast is a little tripod with these adjustable legs, these little foam spider-like legs you can twist in any direction to wrap around a branch or stretch out flat with a little ball head on it. Uh, it was just off of Amazon as part of a GoPro kit I ordered mounts. So the Osmo Action mounts the same as the GoPro. Put it on top, beautiful morning light, point it toward the caribou so the sun is at my back. Stellar. Set it up. Now here, here was mistake number one. I put it on a big flat rock surface. So in there's the tundra and some of it's rock, right? So it was like 10 square feet of this big slab of rock. And the caribou would walk across that to feed on lichen 
on the side. So I figured, you know, it's not going to bounce here when they walk up to it. It's going to be stable on this tripod thing. So I set it up on the rock. And I didn't realize until I reviewed the, all the morning's footage that for every clip I did that morning, there's this beautiful big wide angle shadow of the tripod in the foreground of the video to start with. <laughs> so that sucked. <laughs> except, except here's how it won. And I, okay, I, I'm, this video I'm hoping will be one of the ones that will go viral and get some traction for us and for our feeds and stuff that way. Two caribou came up to it, a mum, a doe and a pricket. And when I'm watching the video, I'm like, oh, this is useless because you've got this big shadow, but they came and stood beside it on either side. So all you could see was the shadows of them and they sniffed it and it was like, and then they'd knock, knock it a little bit, and then their shadows would come up. So think of like shadow puppets on the side of the tent, right? This is what's going on across this rockscape in front of, in the video. Their noses would come up, and then they touch noses like they're talking. And then they touch it again, and then they jump back. And then they come in and sniff it again. It was hilarious video. And I, I showed it. Uh, I was at a, a wildlife photography convention as a speaker this past weekend. It was one of the things I opened with. I just couldn't resist and everybody loved it. It was hilarious. Here's where the part of the story about the rock is failure number two on top of the shadow. Again, this clip, the shadow's okay. The rest of them, it didn't make sense. So after they sniffed it about four times, talked about it by touching noses, the, the doe and the pricket, and made this great video, she then took her front hoof and knocked it over. Okay, that's okay, because maybe it's just curious, but it's on a rock. And she decides at this point to figure out what this thing is and take her front hoof and smash it on as hard as she can about four times. Bang, 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 bang. And I'm like, oh, no, my <laughs> Osmo action is dead. <laughs> so I walked over and collected the camera, and she walked off as I was, I was very nice about it. I'm like, excuse me? Excuse me, this is not good. You know, she walked away. I picked it up thinking the lens would be just destroyed because it was, you know, face down. But the lens didn't have a scratch on it. The whole perimeter, the metal perimeter around the lens hammered like somebody just scratched that like crazy. But the lens was perfect. So the camera was fine. Huge relief. So I learned that. So in the afternoon, I took these legs on this little device and stretched them right out flat and dropped the thing lower and also rotated the perspective a bit so I knew the shadow wouldn't be in position. And that's where I think it was the third attempt again in the afternoon that I was able to get the footage that I've always wanted to get of caribou coming over it. And they were feeding on this on this hillside above a, a cove and there was one really well-known well-worn game trail or road quote down toward the water and when the first doe started walking toward it i went ahead about 80 yards and planted this on the trail right on the trail this time knowing how wide angle this perspective is and it worked out so well the first doe came up she was off to the side but walked in front of it and stopped like a foot short and then I looked around, posing left and right. And then so much so that you could see her impressive hoof, like caribou. You know how they click when they walk and they have this, this broad-toed uh, hoof right there in front of the camera. And then she stepped over it. So her hind legs are in front of the camera while a second doe walked past her. 
And then she stepped over the camera and disappeared. As soon as she did that, you could see the stag coming down the hill at a trot. And the big guy came and went right past the camera. So I showed this video at this convention, too, and it was great to hear the audience. As the stag's coming, everybody's like, oh, they're thinking he's just going to knock it or who knows what. But it gives that intensity, this low angle of this beautiful, impressive animal coming right over. So I was able to get that. The video I recorded for about five minutes. I'm going, we'll have to edit out the middle two minutes because not much happened. There's another group of four or five animals that were yet coming. They're a bit of a gap. This other doe came, and then there were three prickets, and these guys were like rascals. They're running down at a run, just gangly. Hey, we're coming, everybody. And the middle one comes up to the camera without breaking stride, takes and just sends it flying with his nose. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. It was so a how lot did of- you do it? Did you just... When you set it down on the ground, you just hit record and then you back off. So you're yeah. not running it with your phone. You're just hitting record and then just letting letting it roll. Yeah. And I yeah, and, and I know in a perfect world I run it with the phone through Bluetooth, but I, w- I was also photographing. So I just wanted to let it run and not distract me and miss an opportunity. So well, here's another story. It's never ending today. I'd set it in a in a place earlier that day, thinking the group was going to walk by. And this doe came up, didn't even go to the camera, went about four feet behind it and laid down. Then they all came and laid down, all with, you know, within 20 yards of the camera. It was filming until the battery died. It was like three and a half hours. I just sat off watching them because I didn't want to disturb them. So that was out of luck. There were also times. So another thing I did, there was a trail. I didn't just want footage from below or that low angle perspective. I wanted beside. And there was a trail through the evergreens that I thought they'd go up on two occasions. And what I did was I just bent these little flexible legs around the branches and positioned it about four feet off the ground, kind of pointing down to really minimize sky because it was overcast. I didn't want that to wash out the video and just let it film. And unfortunately, they never used that trail. They just stayed where they were. But yeah, it filmed for an hour. But that way, if they went, we'd get it and we can always cut it down and edit it but that was part of the risk that way so a couple of times the battery just died and i'd have to wait for another day because i didn't have another one on me but uh, it was a lot of fun to experiment with and with these guys a totally different perspective and and it's so crisp right this 4k footage and and learning experience i mean who would have thought a caribou would pound it into this so no, that was the last time i put it on a rock for the record <laughs> it was in uh in in on some vegetation from then on that way it wouldn't get damaged if they if they were pounding it with hooves i know you i know you got back with that stag and that group but one of the goals that you had was to try to find the big group this year ah, right did you did you have such a good shoot with the stag in that group that you didn't take the time or did you go try to find the big group yeah the, the group that i tried to find uh that I was told about last year it was an amazing terrain that hike up it was about an hour up in such high country you could see for what well, felt like forever from that vantage point um i wanted to do i'd like to get that big a group but this is such an opportunity he's such a photogenic animal that was in charge of this harem and they were so um so agreeable and, you know they got used to us so we didn't we didn't go and take the time to do that 
unfortunately. I just wanted to maximize what I could because this this group included all ages. So there were young interaction and the females. And there was another stag, a bigger stag uh, around, not bigger than the one that had the harem, but um, probably two years from maturity, who was around the perimeter too. And it was great to get him for a different perspective. And then there were female and male prickets. And it, it was just... Too many light scenarios and with only those, you know, we filmed them for five days. You can really, you can get a lot in day one, but the, the, the location, the backgrounds, the lighting, the behavior can all be different for day two, three, and four. So it was just a great opportunity. And, you know, I was really fortunate to find that, that stag this year again, and he was a little bit bigger than last year, but who knows what happens over the winter to these caribou, right? And so we could have left him and maybe or maybe not found the larger group and just not, you know, I didn't want to risk it. So we stayed with him and, and his group for this shoot. And the moose stuff was going really well, too, in this area. So that combination kept us there. You know, I was hoping for a fox and uh, we didn't eat, didn't set eyes on a fox or coyotes in the area that have established themselves. And that's part of the problem in Newfoundland with the caribou population um, we've covered this briefly before, but in the mid 19 or in the 1980s, there was an ice bridge from Nova Scotia and some coyotes made it across to Newfoundland. They did not exist on the island, the big island of Newfoundland until that point. But due to the thick coniferous vegetation and forest of Newfoundland have populated the island. And we all know that moose moms are very protective of their calves, but caribou moms aren't quite as aggressive and the coyotes have had a huge impact on their populations. So they were there, but we didn't get to see a fox, but one uh, local that uh, gentleman uh, that we got to meet one night uh, posted something about a fox, a cross fox all in the next day too. So it can never be somewhere long enough, right? Beautiful. So cross fox is a, a red fox that has black in its coat as too. I mean, just, such a dramatic looking beautiful animal so the one other thing i was going to say as far as the story what we did on part of our vlog so we had about a three kilometer a little over two mile hike into where we'd left the caribou in the morning this was afternoon so i wanted to get some talk about what we were doing so i'm just holding the osmo action out in my hand and pilly and i were walking along this path along this road trail and she was wearing a white toque or winter hat because there was wind chill and stuff. But normally for wildlife photographers and white mittens, we wouldn't do that, right? Because we just stick out to animals and anything white usually causes concern. You think a white-tailed deer flash their tail and stuff. It's just not a color in a lot of wilderness scenarios that is it uh, causes disturbance. Caribou are different because they're largely white. They think something wearing white's another caribou. And in fact, it evokes curiosity. So in this situation, it was it was okay. And we were talking about that recording the vlog. And I just said we still had like a kilometer to go to where the caribou were. And all of a sudden, and caribou are normally pretty docile and complacent. And, you know, he does his, his grunting and he they can count. Let me tell you that. I mean, he's watching all <laughs> the females. And as soon as one or two are out of sight, he's like looking where they went and he brings them back. Or they end up all going, but he's so watchful of the group and yeah, and so vocal, a lot of fun that way too. We're walking along, just talking about what we're going to be doing. And over the hill, about a hundred yards in front of us comes a doe with the stag behind her full out run. He's chasing her 
she obviously has decided she wants to leave the group for whatever reason. I don't know. And he's on her, t- like right on top of her, flat out, running as fast as horses can gallop, right by us. I mean, right by us. And we're right out in the open on the tundra. So we just stopped, stood still, and it went, it's like just a pounding hooves right by us and gone. And it was so random. It was wonderful for storytelling because it was like this is what wildlife photography is all about you know we know these animals we can predict their behavior to a degree but these kind of amazing encounters happen when we're out there so it was great footage the only thing i regret is the wide angle on the osmo action you know they're a little smaller in the video than i'd like them to be but it still resonates with the story because i we're talking then i go to the caribou then i'm back to me and it's like what was that you know <laughs> What? And so he brought her all the way around and then took her back to the rest of them. Lots of fun. That is amazing. So I yeah. can't wait to see that footage. Yeah, it's 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 fantastic. And the shadow puppets of them. And yeah, it was a lot of fun. And that's one thing. Yeah, if I was there for a few more days, and that's where, you know, if, if we were there as a, as a team or something, too, to have two or three or four of these cameras, that, you know, doing different perspectives instead of just a one go each time. Or if I had a second one kind of thing, too, there are those options. It's unlimited, right? That's I mean, when you're doing wildlife and nature. Filming, it is unlimited. And how do you know where to put those? Th- I mean, I looked at that all day long with those moose. I'm like, oh, I'm going to set it up over here. And then it didn't look like they would ever go over there. So then I wouldn't do it. And then I'd get sidetracked shooting something else and then before you know it the end of the days that gone and you didn't shoot anything so then you try it you think about it the next day and it's a lot to just keep track of and try and you're going to end up with a lot of stuff that doesn't work for sure but i think when you do get it like you got it it's totally worth it yeah when it works out you know, and it's, it helps to have a, a second person like uh, Pilly could pick up the camera after if, if everybody's moved on. But when you're by yourself, you know, there were times uh, that she had hiked uh, to a different vista and I'd be by myself. I'd set up the Osmo action and the groups moved off and they're cresting a ridge in beautiful light. And I know they're going to keep going. It's like setting something down. You know, I never leave my backpack on the ground because you know, nine times out of 10, I'm not going to be able to make it back without losing opportunity. And that was a bit of a challenge because they'd start moving in a, in a direction I wanted to photograph. But I knew if I left the camera back there 100 yards, then I'd have to go find it hours later from who knows where. Right. So that was a bit of a compromise. And that's something you always have to weigh, you know, and run and pick it up. Yeah, that was, you know, we've we've talked about it. You guys got that great footage this summer and just using those cameras more and I, uh, when, when I was filming that big bull elk a few weeks back, my intent was to get back down there and then circumstances just didn't allow it. I had a couple film projects that were going on, but, uh, I had talked to Jason Loftus and his son, Hunter, Mike, that we, we did the podcast with and Hunter was there and I'd kind of told him a couple things that I wanted to do. Well, Hunter has kind of gone crazy with the video this, this fall. He's doing a fantastic job as we've touched on before, but Hunter got some fantastic footage of the brook trout that we had even talked about. You and I had talked about last fall, Mike, trying right. to get some footage of those brook trout in the, in the water in, in Colorado. And Hunter did a great job. He set the camera, got some great footage of them. And then he also uh, was able to get, you know, just like Mark was talking about with the, uh, the doe caribou, 
and or the caribou coming by the camera hunter got the same thing with some cow elk that that fed right by his camera and he had just kind of calculated where he thought they were going to end up feeding to before they went and bedded down and set his camera set it and forget it and came back and ended up with some fantastic footage so i think it's just it's just a matter of taking advantage of those opportunities that are in front of us but at the same time i understand mark what you were saying about not setting it down and then you end up having to pursue the herd and then you end up missing something there's a trade-off for sure and you know there are times where i've set i've set a tripod down and i was just hopeful that i could find it when i walked back (laughs) you you kind of take some of those chances but it's definitely not something you want to do very often let me let me tell a tripod story quickly somebody who set it down mr mr luke vandervenen my good buddy who was on a podcast last year on our podcast we were filming the elk rut probably three years ago and so much was going on around this harem but we were on the perimeter we weren't near it he left his tripod on a berm a high point on a little knoll we're filming and within 20 minutes ago or so the bull and a, and a cow had rotated up on this knoll in a beautiful setting and there were a few other photographers in this situation and there were a few comments shared about whose tripod is that you know four feet from the bull in everybody's picture so there's another reason not to leave it especially in a, in a setting where there are a group of photographers but yeah i i don't trust any time to leave anything on the anything behind anymore because they're i don't it's great to hike many miles with these animals and i love every step of that for the physical effort but i do not want to have to hike it all the way back to try and find something later and so i weather it out and carry it but if having a second person to pick up stuff and that opportunity is there is good too for these action cams so after newfoundland we flew back and we're only home for less than 24 hours and we headed up to algonquin provincial park in Ontario. And Algonquin is world renowned for autumn colors and lakes and Canadian shield and mature white pines. And we were there for a wildlife photography convention, the first time this has ever been done. And it's just run by two local businessmen who decided to start it up because so many people traveled to Algonquin Park to photograph and to experience wilderness. And it's a beautiful area. And we were one of the speakers for this weekend event and had a lot of fun. It was a little bit past color, peak color, but still plenty there. And the mornings were um, just beautiful for fog and light and landscapes. And, of course, there were moose around. The food was phenomenal, and, and the guys put on a, and a fantastic show, and they'll be running it again next year. And it's called the Howell Wildlife Photography Convention in Whitney, Ontario. So anybody who's in Ontario and, and thinking about this, there are a lot lot of very keen photographers that that paid to be a part of this weekend they had live music the first night a bonfire the second night and some very talented and diverse photographers that spoke there and i i I guess what i would also suggest is those out there who are very well who are accomplished photographers and and have something offered to an audience this way too may want to reach out to these guys and and they have a website howl photography convention actually i'll have to get the website number or actual address but it was fun a lot of fun and and met some new people and 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 it was kind of it's a small grouping of people too so it's everybody got to know everybody and have a great time and and share stories so we just got back from that a couple days ago and now getting back in stride with fall color here and all the to-dos that i try to accomplish annually and the colors being so vibrant this year really feel the pressure in the next week to 10 days to get them in before they're 
the rain wind blows them off. And whitetail deer are one of those things that I focus on uh, at this point in time as well. What about ticks? You have to worry well, about them. I love Alberta. No tick issues. I love Newfoundland. No tick issues. Ontario, Algonquin Park. I have never picked one up there. So they haven't made it that far north. Southern Ontario, so places, I have a handful of places I film whitetails, and they all have the black-legged tick that carries Lyme disease. And so it's something, it's a, it's a big distraction, to be honest, because it's, it's such a serious illness. It's so hard to diagnose properly for those that get infected by it. Some people, the antibiotics cure. I've been on antibiotics, I think, four times for tick bites in the past 20 years, but the concentration of ticks is ramping up significantly in, in our area or throughout Ontario, southern Ontario and eastern Ontario. So what, yeah, it's, it's changed. The only thing that makes it doable for me now to be in the woods I used to be able to go anywhere, hike, you know, 10 years ago, I could hike anywhere, kneel down, lay down, wherever I needed to be, sit down and not be concerned. But two years ago, I think before I started this new protective measure, I'll explain it in a second. I was getting, you know, between five and 10 ticks on me every outing. And I would wear my socks over my pants in my rubber boots. And I would wear blue jeans or light gray pants so that I would see the ticks. And in nine times out of 10, they would be on my knee area, just due to the height of the vegetation. And then I'd carry a pill bottle, empty pill bottle in a Ziploc bag. And every one of those little buggers I'd put in the pill bottle and take home and put it in the freezer. Uh, and I learned 24 hours is not enough. 48 seemed to kill them all. And I did, used to do the same when I picked them off my German Shepherd. You know, the dogs get far more of them because they can't help but run through all the foliage and live life, right? Unfortunately, on a dog, you don't find them until they're fully engorged and you can feel this uh, M&M-sized bump on them. And with tweezers, pull straight out and pull them out. And I've heard some dogs have can suffer from Lyme disease. Thankfully, our German Shepherd never, despite all the ticks over the last three or four years of his life, he never took ill from anything. So that was good. Not all black-legged ticks carry Lyme disease either. It depends. Certain areas have a higher concentration than others. I think uh, typically it's around 50% if I was to guess. So the other thing, yeah. And it's baby ticks are tiny and they're more likely to be on a person in late summer. I had a baby tick on my forearm a year ago, and this is how small they are. It was fully engorged and hopping off before I saw it. And basically, it was the size of a small mole on my arm. And so I went to the emergency because it was still on my arm. I kept an eye on it. And I'm like, okay, should I? The guy gave me the antibiotics this time. But personally, I didn't take them because I researched it. And the first generation or the baby ticks uh, haven't had a blood meal before. So they haven't had it. They haven't picked up Lyme disease. So this little thing crawled off me and I just disposed of it. But I never flicked them back into the forest because that just, you know, fuels the population. So it's something to be very careful. I, I have some good friends that have suffered severely from Lyme disease. There are celebrities that have. It's, it's a dangerous thing. So it's for me, I'm just I love filming white-tailed deer so much. It's what I cut my teeth on in this in this industry. They're such a, a fun, vibrant, alert animal and in the rut so active that I can't pull myself away from filming them. So a couple of years ago, was, as, as, as close to a, as much risk as I've taken, the past last year and this year, I have a new strategy in place where I bought a light pair of coveralls. 
not insulated is what I mean. And they're my outer layer. So I have pants and everything underneath. These coveralls are gray. So they're kind of, they blend in, they're drab. But because it's a slate gray, I can see ticks on them if I need to. And I, and now this isn't something I necessarily personally recommend because I know there's concerns around chemicals, but it's the only way that I can get it in the field. And I hope that it won't cause problems. And they're even, you know, Sean James, who was on our podcast this summer and who, you know, spends most of his life in the forest, you know, he's bought shirts and stuff that's treated with permethrin. So that's, that's what I'm talking about. And he wears them to deter insects. It's not available in Ontario. It's not available in New York State. It's not available in all states. It is in Pennsylvania. It is in Connecticut where you can buy this It's Sawyer's permethrin. It's a, it's a liquid spray. And so what I'll do is on a day with no wind, I'll, I'll go out and I just did this yesterday for this year since I just got home and apply it from the waist down on these coveralls. According to the instructions, I spray it on, let it air dry. I let it air dry for hours and hours and it's supposed to be good for six weeks, one application or five or six washings. But to be honest, I don't wash them because it's just out in the bush coveralls and I'll wear those over top, never against my skin. Uh, when I first learned of this stuff, it was through my cousin. He was traveling in Pennsylvania and the locals down there put him onto it. And they said, never, they don't ever put it against their skin. So I, it's always an outer layer and it does for weeks, it lasts for weeks, up to six weeks. But the proof was, like I said, two years ago, five to 10 ticks. Every time I went out last year, filming for a month, I saw two ticks on my legs. By the time I reached in my upper pocket to get the pill bottle, they dropped off dead. That was it. So that has made it possible for me to keep filming. Makes me a little nervous because they're hardy little buggers. And if they die that quickly, it's like, oh, gee, this is on me, right? <laughs> yeah. It's the only way that I can be there because I, you know, I don't, you know, there's one place out of the five or so that I film whitetails that I can get away with a little bit of back road stuff from the vehicle. Otherwise, it's all in, in, in a blind in the bush, you know. So, or I'm moving around where I'm exposed. So this has made it possible. So it's unfortunate. And, you know, it's something that's really taken away from the year round, aside from the dead of winter, even December, you know, we can have frost after frost, can have a couple inches of snow and have it melt. They're still out there. They're hardy. Late season. It was always late autumn. November was probably the worst for our German shepherd. So winter, we can get out and enjoy the wilderness, but the rest of the year, we have to be so careful here in, in Ontario and, you know, friends come and, you know, they want to go to parks and camp and they just have to read them the ride act. You know, if you walk the trails, don't rub up against the grass because you won't feel them on you necessarily. You know, half the time I don't, sometimes I can feel them walking. So it's, it's, there's a risk to it. So being smart about it is, uh, and cautious. So that's, that's something about filming in Ontario if you have to be in, in the woods. And it's not just Ontario, it's all the northeastern U.S. as well. I mean, it stemmed from Lyme, Connecticut. That's where the first cases were found, uh, I believe, decades ago, a couple decades ago. I think that's accurate. But it's just been spreading as the climate's been warming and winters aren't as harsh, which is why three hours north of where I live in Algonquin Park, they're not established yet, but it's truly a lot colder there in the winter than what we have. And even, you know, five or six nights of minus 25 don't not seem to knock them back. So I'm not sure how cold it has to ever get again to, to reduce their population, but they have been expanding. And I think there's even some in some pockets at West now, too. So I know it's not wildlife photography necessarily, but it's important for people who enjoy wilderness and time doing wildlife photography to be aware of the stuff where it exists and they are 
just so people know, they move from one location to another on birds, right? So spring migration, fall migration, they get on a songbird or on a on waterfowl, like a goose, if it's on land, it's obviously not the water, but more so on songbirds. And then they migrate. And since it takes 24 to 48 hours for them to feed, you know, the bird could have moved hundreds and hundreds of miles. And then the, the fully engorged tick drops off and lays its eggs in its new home. And then they can feed on any mammal, right? Uh, mice, deer, any any mammal can host them. Anyway, that's the long and short of Lyme disease and, and to be cautious about that. But I, I still need to be in the wilderness. But I honestly, I, I'll direct more of my time each autumn to trips where it's not an issue if I can. Right. I just I want to be able to sit down anywhere, kneel anywhere and not have to wear a chemical on my outer person on my clothes. I don't blame you, but I can see why you got to be out there. You got to get those, you know, you want to get those images. So just plan accordingly. Someday I might do another book on white dale deer. I can't do that without new work. Right. Yeah. So. So that's kind of brought you up to speed then or up to date. That's where we are. The pre-ruts ramping up and the next couple of weeks will be full of activity, more and more sightings, trying to get the color while it's still in the trees. They're in as robust a form as they'll be all year, as all the rutting animals are at their peak, right? Necks are swelling up, perfect condition, very alert, active, more and more active each day. That helps with finding them. So, yeah, it's it's been a short but very effective and high quality trips this fall. I wish each of the trips could have been longer. And, you know, we've talked about what we'll do in the future. You know, we might extend, well, I plan to extend both those trips if, if depending on what else is going on, but if, if nothing else is for next year, because the Rockies, there's so much was going on and, and in Newfoundland, it's a secret. You know, I can't tell many people about it, but there's just something so relaxing about being there. It's quiet. There are very few photographers. There's no animosity for photographers. People get excited that there's a wildlife photographer around if you happen to be talking to somebody. It's, and it's, it's such an inviting uh, culture and so funny. Nobody has, uh, from my experience, nobody has more jokes up their sleeves than Newfoundlanders. So, <laughs> lots of laughing and stories and just the different perspectives. You know, I was when I was walking along this trail with one of the local guys, he's like, yeah, here's a road here. I'm like, that's not a road, buddy. Oh, no, this is a road here in Newfoundland. I'm like, okay, if you say so, it's your home. It's a road. Let's go. You know, good times. And I'll put pictures up on. I've got to get to editing. This is, That's the trouble this time of year. It's, it's such a stockpiling, active, want to be in the field every day we can. You know, today's a pouring rain day, so it gives us the opportunity to catch up and do other things but if it's not if it's an overcast day that's going to pop those colors got to be out there i don't and then you're out all day and then driving here and there and to get to places editing it's hard to do but we'll have some coming along and hopefully missy with all her magic and what we do with podcasts might give me a week or two or three to get these ready but they'll be in the show notes so go to wildandexposed.com to see what we're talking about from today's podcast then we'll put those videos up in uh, on youtube too you know, we'll put some teasers on this, on Instagram too, clips from them and stuff. But and I'll use the iWatermark app. Something I've been promoting out there. People asking me at this wildlife photography convention, newbies at social media or even experienced ones. You know, how do they get the right watermark? And the iWatermark app allows you to put whatever size, font, color, positioning with what you want. I don't work with them. I just 
really have enjoyed using that app. There's two of them. We've talked about this before in the podcast. It's the blue version, which is cheaper just for still photos and the yellow version, which is a little bit more, but we're still talking five bucks at most for the one time. And I think we were talking about that last time just because it's applicable to videos as well. But what I what I found and the reason that I actually switched was that the, the blue version does impact the quality of your image slightly. And the, the yellow version that you can use for the videos as well. Uh, what is the plus? Is that right, Mark? The, it might be. I, I can. Anyway, I just know yeah. it by color, to be honest. Um, that that doesn't seem to have any impact yes, on the quality. Is. I watermark so flat. I, I would strongly recommend spending a few extra bucks and and getting that one. Well, yeah, if it's five dollars, right, and it's good, yep. you know, for the however long you keep it on your phone. So, I mean, what we the time we spend creating content for social media. To, to properly watermark it in a way that appeals to you, each and every one of you out there, you know, it's, it's customizable. So yeah, it makes sense to do it right. And five bucks is nothing that way, but it, it'll apply to the video. And so, yeah. yeah. Oh. Ron, do you have anything you want to add from your last couple of weeks? No, honestly, it's been pretty slow here. I, the last trip that I was trying to get to Colorado to, to kind of finish up the rut down there, I got, they closed the interstate. And so I ended up staying staying put. I don't have a lot to offer, but I was anxious to hear about the trip out to see that stag again and oh, wishing great. that I would have been along, but it mm -hmm. is what it is. Well, you know, the offer is open, you guys, and it's one of those scenarios. This is another reason why we didn't bail on him to look for another group. I, I think back to, you know, my time with elk or moose or any animal. There's a bear that I photographed for three years, a black bear that was just such a perfect black bear, huge, healthy, and every opportunity was a privilege to spend time filming him. And then one spring he was gone. And the the biggest elk that I've bull elk I've ever had the joy of filming. I filmed him for three years and didn't find him every time. I'd start and get halfway through the trip and start stressed, say, oh, I need to find him. And finally, way back, there's a bugle and, and got on him. The last time, and he's my highest selling elk by far. There, there's a handful that have been super photogenic, but this guy in particular didn't find, this was two years ago. So not last year, the year before. So 2017 was the last opportunity I, I had to film or, or ever will have. The first three days of the trip, no sighting of him, couldn't find him. Then the fourth day, found him and spent from sunrise to sundown with him back in the timber. And this is another thing. Have your kit prepared, right? You have your water bottles or, well, reusable water bottles. No single-use plastic. Stop that stuff. I'm off it. So I've got my Nalgene now. For these trips in Newfoundland was carrying the um, the life straw bottle. So there's no weight, right? You don't have to carry multiple bottles if you're going to be all day. Or a big Nalgene usually gets me through the day. But you just scoop it and sip it through the life straw, no matter where you are, and you've got your water for what you need to, to stay hydrated. But And then I have some, you know, uh, granola bars or, or protein bars in my pack, so I can make it through a day. On the so the story on the fourth day of the trip, found him, spent all day with him. The fifth day, you know, he might have been a mile away with his harem, spent all day with him. That day, the next morning, he was killed. So I had two full days, and then, then he was gone. And you just never know. I think we've we've touched on this. I mean, these privileges, these places that we go, these, these gems that we find. Now, yeah, we talked about it, actually, about the elk in Colorado. 
on a, on a podcast maybe a month or so ago. You know, he's well known, but he's such a unique bull that it's a it's a rare opportunity to make the most of it. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, the bull that I was photographing, I mean, he was known by some people, but wasn't quite as widely broadcast. But anyway, so this caribou, it's the same situation. It is such a privilege to have a group of caribou accept us for days. I mean, we're amongst them at times. They walk past us and and to be in that space is not something that is guaranteed to last forever or from one year to the next. You know, a harsh winter could do it. And, you know, part of the problem with caribou populations with the warming climate is more snows accumulating on the tundra. Caribou don't eat woody browse on trees like moose do. They have to paw through the snow to get at the lichen. Usually on the tundra, it's windswept and there's access year round to the lichen. And if the snow accumulates, then that makes that, you know, far more challenging. We don't know what will happen. You know, our coyotes could, could you know, populate more in this area and, and any number of things could happen. So that's why we stayed with them and, and collected so many images. And it's it's such an opportunity. I want close-ups, right? Uh, profiles, head-on, movement, behavior, tending behavior, breeding behavior, sleeping, you know, video of the, of the guy it was hilarious. He'd be chasing a cow all into the rut. Totally. It's going on right now. And the cow would lay down. He'd go another 10 yards and just fold up. Boom. His legs are gone. He's down. And as soon as he's down, his head's on the ground. Total like <laughs> out. It was it was so entertaining. He's like, no, I, he was so tired, but so focused on rutting. But when he took his naps, they weren't long, you know, might be 20 minutes. He was all in right away, just down, head down, everything. Nothing was bothering him. Just so I took some photos and some video of that, too. So it's an opportunity. And I'm sure all of you out there, you know, whether it's in your backyard or at a, at a state park or conservation area or some wilderness land, national park, these the opportunities come along once in a while and you just have to make the best of it. And it really felt that way on this trip. Because every day presented different opportunities, but really intimate and cool, dynamic experiences with these caribou. And for me, there's just something. I love all these big mammals, dare I say, charismatic megafauna. But there's just something about the caribou, too, that being there that far north and that rhythm with them is just so peaceful. Even though it's a rut, it's something peaceful about it. I've had a few people in the past couple of weeks, whether it's on my Instagram on wild and exposed here and there or or just messaging me or texting me bringing up the word epic so we haven't covered it enough lately i know the jar needs a little more funding so this fall so far has been epic quality stuff and a lot of fun so i hope you've enjoyed the stories and and you will see some some of the images and, and the video stuff popping up on on the show notes at our website so be sure to check that out and keep an eye on youtube if you're not subscribed to our youtube channel get on it and subscribe and hit that notification bell so that when when we do put up content that links into some of these podcasts and stories that you'll be notified and be able to watch it and enjoy it yourself at your leisure watch it over and over tell your friends about it at our youtube channel wild and exposed podcast and you can also see more of our work on facebook on instagram and, of course, on our website at wildandexposed.com. also want to give a big shout-out to our hardworking and talented producer, Missy McKenzie, for all that she does behind the scenes to create this podcast for your listening enjoyment. And no matter which podcast platform you're listening to us on, make sure to subscribe there as well and tell your friends about it. Until next time, you've been listening to Wild and Exposed Podcast. 
Thanks for tuning in.